ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Don Walker has written some of the greatest songs in Australian rock and roll. A lot of them became famous through his years with Cold Chisel. Songs like K-San, Cheap Wine, Choir Girl and Flame Trees. They're songs of Saturday night, but even more about the fallout on Sunday morning. And over the decades since Chisel split, Don has kept writing songs about forgotten country towns and drifters of bad decisions and of the yearning beneath it all. Paul Kelly calls him the Clint Eastwood of Australian rock, and it's hard to imagine our music without him. But Don could have led a very different life. He's the son of a schoolteacher and of a farmer who'd done several tours in World War II. Don dreamed of being an architect and actually started his adult life as a physicist. But quantum mechanics couldn't keep him, and Don has just released a new solo album called Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky. Hi, Don. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Very well. Tell me where it was that you started life, Don. I'm a Queenslander born in Eyre in North Queensland. And what were your family doing up there? They had... uh, My mother and father had settled on a soldier settlement block. That is a, a patch of mangrove swamp and bush that my father had drawn as a veteran of World War II and they cleared that into a cane farm. Into a cane farm and that smell of sugar cane is so evocative. Does it still bring you back to those early years when you smell sugar cane now? Uh, it does and and the, the, the other varied smells of tropical North Queensland. It always does the same thing, you know, North Queensland bush tomatoes. All those kind of things. You've lived away from Queensland for a long time, but are you still a loyal Queenslander where it really matters in in terms of the football? Of course. I have been a Broncos supporter since they entered the competition because that was the the first chance that a Queenslander could support a Queensland team in the the general week-by-week competition. I've always been a Maroon supporter. I'm definitely a Maroon in origin. Your family then moved to Grafton. What kind of farm did they have there? It wouldn't have still been sugarcane? No, it was a small farm west of Grafton that my father bought from his parents who had owned it back in the 20s and 30s. And so what, what were they growing? Well, they were growing uh, mainly corn, potatoes, a few cattle. It was a very small farm, 54 acres. Did you have jobs in, in that as a, a kid on a farm? Uh, we helped to a certain extent. Mainly, I, I think uh, we got in the way. <laughs> so what kind of freedom did you have growing up? Uh, growing up on a farm like that, you have an incredible amount of freedom. Somebody called it, um, you know, being free-range kids. Not just with the extent of our farm, which was between a river and a major creek. So there were riverbanks everywhere, incredible incredibly rich soil but there were the other farms around and and other kids of our age so we were just um all our parents never saw us really outside school we were running wild did you have a, a favorite place to hang out 
at home? Was there a spot on the farm or in the house that felt like yours? Everywhere. Um, I have a younger brother who's two years younger than me and it was basically the two of us anywhere where we were. You mentioned your, your dad was a soldier who'd served in World War II. Where, where had he been during the war? He volunteered and um, was sent to the Middle East uh, where he was in Palestine and Syria. And then they brought them back home via what was then Ceylon because uh, the Japanese were getting close in New Guinea. And then he did um, either two or three tours of New Guinea. Your mum was still at school during the war. What's the story of how they first connected with one another? The story that I've inherited is this, that schoolgirls all over the country uh, during World War II used to knit socks and balaclavas for the soldiers and they would be sent off in boxes. And um, they, the schoolgirls were not allowed to include any communication whatsoever. But my mother sneaked a note into a pair of socks and, and my father drew these socks out of a box in Palestine and this is the first communication between my mother and my father. <laughs> Do you know what the note said? No. Does that fit with the, the sort of person your mum was to go against the rules like that and send a note? Um, mischief? Yes, there's a certain element of that and I don't think you'd find anybody without that. Well, maybe not all the other girls in, in her class were slipping notes. I think a lot of them would have been slipping notes in. <laughs> so they have this note, you know, how did they then actually meet in person at the end of the war? Years later, when um, my father returned uh, and the war was over, he returned and, and uh, attended a dance somewhere near Grafton. That's where they lived. And that's where he met my mother. And somehow in their courtship, this note must have come out. <laughs> It'd be hard not to think the fates had determined it. That's right. If it happened that way. You say that was a story you inherited. Who was the storyteller in your family? Storyteller in our family was my father. He would come in from the farm after a very long day's work. We would sit round the dinner table and he did the talking and he was a he was a wonderful storyteller and he'd had, a, he'd had a fascinating life, so he had many stories to tell. Of course, there were, there were stories that he couldn't tell, but um, we as children were unaware of that side of things. What do you mean, stories about the war? Yes, yes, things that, that he went through. You know, if, if you're a soldier in those places. What kind of education had your father had? He, he had to leave school when he was 13 because his father had been injured in World War I and couldn't work the farm. So Dad had to leave school and basically get behind a horse and a, and a plough for his teenage years to keep the family going. So his formal education finished there, but he was an avid reader and he read all sorts of things, read widely, and he was very articulate. Did he have that in common with your mother? Yes, they had a they had an easy intellectual relationship. She was more uh, 
formally educated than he was because she went, she finished high school and she went to teacher's college. And she was also, she's one of those people for whom poetry is uh, oxygen. Uh, so she loved poetry all her life and, and knew about that. What values were important to them, Don? What kind of man did they want you to grow into? Our values were education. We attended St Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Grafton every Sunday. And so the values were, I guess, Presbyterian values. An important strand of my father's forebears were free kirkers from Scotland. In those days, small country towns were like Grafton were quite sectarian. There was a heavy division between uh, the various church denominations and especially a division between the Catholics and the non-Catholics. That's, that kind of thing dissolved largely as myself and my mates approached the end of high school. Sectarianism seemed to disappear as we went to university with, with the Catholic kids. Was there much music in the house when you were growing up? Yes. My father loved the music of his teenage years, which was the 30s, which was American um, big band music, both the important uh, black big bands like Count Basie and Duke Ellington and the uh, white big bands, especially the Dorsey brothers, who drew their inspiration from from the black big bands. All of them. Uh, I, I can remember when I was 10 years old, he and I together sent away for a Reader's Digest box set of big band music and the two of us just devoured it. He was a harmonica player. He played the harmonica at home and, and was very good. So where did you start learning music? What was your first instrument? Uh, piano. Um, my mother received a... There was a child endowment that was brought in by the Menzies government early in the 60s where the government paid, I think, £10 directly to each mother for each child. Ten, I don't know if it was £10 a month or £10 a week or whatever it was. This was the first time in Australian history, so I'm told, that money went actually to the wife, not to what was called in those days the head of the family. And with that money, my mother bought a little parlour piano and sent us for piano lessons. Who was your teacher? Uh, her name was uh, Dot Morris, and uh, she was a spinster who lived three farms away. <laughs> what would Dot, or I imagine you called her Miss Morris or Miss Morris? Uh, for us, it was definitely uh, Miss Morris in her earshot. <laughs> and what about outside of her earshot? Dot. <laughs> what sort of songs or what sort of music did she teach you? Uh, my brother and I used to go down there every Saturday morning and... Um, and learn the standard boring things that people have to learn to, to, in learning to play the piano for the first couple of years. Uh, there's not much fun in it. And learning theory. And then gradually that blossomed into... We became good enough so that she could teach us um, fat, a bit of Fat Swallow, a bit of Winifred Atwell, things like that, a bit of Chopin. Were you playing, starting to play in bands while you were still at, at high school, Don, with other kids your age? 
at a certain point, we lost that farm uh, to successive floods and we moved into town. And uh, just in the last year of high school, I formed a band with some mates. And I believe you were in a, uh, in a significant competition, Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds. Yes, in the final year at high school, we were in the Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds. And um, it, it wasn't a very good little band, but it was one we were very passionate about. And, um, and I wrote a song for them, uh, which is uh, fortunately lost to us all now. But that was, that was quite an unusual thing to do for a band in that competition. How was it to, to perform in front of an audience for you? Ah, terrifying. The first time I performed in front of an audience, we did this on, a, on another band's borrowed gear. And, uh, and they had an organ and I was standing up with one foot on the volume pedal. And as the song progressed, uh, for some reason I lost all... I became paralysed in my legs. So I lost all feeling from from the knees down and then from the waist down and and the foot that was on the volume pedal started to convulse. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you might have given up at that point. You might have thought this is, I'm not cut out for playing music in front of other people. What was the buzz that kept you there? Oh, it was too much fun getting it. And, you know, I was just in love with the music. You did choose to study physics, though, at university after high school. What drew you to, to physics? The, the science and the maths at high school, that was the real world. Uh, you know, pop music was... was um, it, that was not considered real world. And, uh, and it was something I was good at. I was good at the English side of stuff, too. Um, we had good teachers. A mate of mine and I... We did higher level maths and science for the HSC and uh, then went to university. And where we were in Grafton, everybody who went to university all went to University of New England in Armidale. That was the obvious place to go. And that training that you got in, in physics, has it still shaped the way you think about the world, do you think? Very much, yes. Theoretical physics went went to some strange places at the beginning of the 20th century, particularly with relativity and quantum mechanics. I, I can't talk authoritatively about these things because I haven't done it for 50 years and it's gone a long way since then too. But where quantum mechanics leads us is into realities that are counterintuitive. Uh, the the basic rules of um, you know Heisenberg uncertainty and 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 things like that that you cannot simultaneously tell where something is and how fast it's going. If you observe something, you cannot observe something without affecting that thing. Uh, the more you get into this stuff, the more it sounds, it, and the less it sounds like you know Western science, and the more it sounds like Eastern religion. Was there a kind of intuitive appeal to you about, as you say, ideas that on the superficial level appear uh, illogical almost, but was there something about them that 
chimed with the way you were feeling about the way things really are in the universe? No, because mathematics doesn't lie. And it's so if, if the mathematics leads you to a certain picture, that picture is the truth. And um, unlike language or philosophy, um, if you come to a mathematical truth, that mathematical truth applies out between the galaxies. Shakespeare doesn't. <laughs> what kind of relationship is there between those parts of your brain that uh, are around maths and science and the parts of your brain that are around music and, and songwriting? How do you feel them as connecting or not with one another? Uh, there's some connection. There's definitely some connection. I, I noticed in the physics department in UNE... Uh, all the staff played musical instruments. Um, uh, my professor, Neville Fletcher, who later on went on to head up the CSIRO, he was, um, he was an on-call woodwind player for the Sydney Symphony and, he, and his hobby was building harpsichords. Uh, so I was taught physics and mathematics by violinists and woodwind players. In theory, music is can be very mathematical, um, and in fact, it's a, there's a there's a seductive tendency to to be drawn into the mathematics of music, and and to be drawn away from the the, the wild soul part of it, which you see in some bands and you see in some classical music. So by day you are uh, studying physics. What role was music having in your life while you were a student? Um, I, I went to university and thought, well, that, that's over. I'm, I have to get serious now. So I didn't play in bands and I did very well in first year. And so then I thought, well, maybe I can, maybe I can do this, have some fun. And I uh, formed a band and... The more and more I got drawn into playing in bands, the less and less I did well at uni. And by the time I finished my university courses, all I, was, I, was, I wasn't thinking about science or maths in my head. I was thinking about music. I, I guess I'm, I'm talking about what's, what's actually infesting your head while you're doing everything else. Um, at a certain point, it was... It was physics and the beauty of, of pure maths. By the time I finished, it was, uh, you know, it was Led Zeppelin. You did end up using your degree for a job out of uni, though. Where, where did you work? Uh, I was offered a job at the weapons research establishment in Salisbury, in South Australia. And so I went down there. Um, I'd never been in that part of the world before. And... Um, and so I began life down there. And what sort of work were you doing at the weapons research establishment, if you're classified to tell me? That was, that's uh, the weapons research establishment, which is, which is called something else now. Um, it's, it's quite a vast establishment uh, and it was cover, covering all aspects of, of technological research in regards to Army, Navy and Air Force. So I was I was put in the section that dealt with flight research, and um, and I was dealing with um, 
modelling airflows across uh, across the surfaces of certain aircraft and bomb release systems. So how did uh, you end up meeting the musicians who would go on to create Cold Chisel? Um, I auditioned and got myself in, into a few bands in Adelaide. But then uh, I went one weekend, there was a big jam session out at Norwood Town Hall and I, I went with my girlfriend out to have a look. And in a side room there was a stand-up piano and there was this kid there with, um, I mean, who a, a few years younger than me and um, had a little amp and a, and a guitar and he was a quiet bloke. I was too. And so we did a bit of playing together and he, he was a beautiful guitar player, I thought. And, um, and that was Ian. And so we did that for half an hour and then I left. My girlfriend and I went, walked a couple of blocks to a pizza joint and sat down to have, have a bite to eat. And next minute he's there. He followed us. <laughs> so I used, to, I used to run into him around the city. And then I finally answered an ad in a music shop to uh, want to form a new band and I found myself at a suburban house. Uh, knocking on the door and I was led in by the young man whose parents' house it was, Les Kasmarak, and he led me into his bedroom and, and there was Ian. With Ian guitar Moss. Once again. So that was really the beginnings of the band. And did it feel right straight away? It, it felt right working with Ian because he was... Um, on that day, he and I... We played around with um, the song Georgia and particularly the, the Jerry Reed version of it, the chords of which I loved. And that's when I realised that um, he's uh, an astonishing singer, even at the age of, I don't know, maybe he was 17, 18. And um, as as we got other guys in the band, for, from that beginning of knowing that we had Ian and his guitar playing and singing, we thought that we were pretty good. And how did you think about what skills you were bringing at that point? What were you offering? Uh, I, I was just a piano player, um, <laughs> hoping, my, hoping to bullshit my way to not get fired. <laughs> I think Jimmy Barnes was similarly only 17 or so when he started singing with you. What was he like as a performer at the beginning? Um, Jim was a shoegazer. Um, at that stage, on stage, he was um, very quiet, used to cling onto a tambourine and, um, and just do his singing and not look at anybody. He didn't acquire the the theatrical skills until a couple of years later. So you formed together in Adelaide, you moved around to, to Melbourne and then to Sydney. How hard was it to take the leap into music full-time and walk away from the sort of serious scientific job that you'd set yourself up in? Um, by the time I did that, which was, you know, two and a half years later, we were very much a, a hardened band by that stage. We'd been trying to do um, original material. We'd been working around Adelaide for quite a while and it was all getting stale. 
and um, it was a case of uh, we have to we have to either do this properly or not, which means get out of here, which means all resign jobs, and I did that. We had a we had an engagement in Melbourne, and we drove overnight to do that. What did your mum and dad back in Grafton think about this decision? By that stage, I was well independent. I imagine they thought it was insane and uh, they would have thought the whole band thing was um, a pretty childish phase, which it was. And um, I know at one stage after after we'd been touring Oh, for a good many years, and we're actually just starting to achieve some success. Uh, we came through Armidale at one stage, and I went into the old physics department, went into my favourite um, uh, lecturer, and just just to catch up. And then he said, uh, very politely, and Don, what are you going to do when you grow up? <laughs> Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. The early years of Chisel were hard work. It was a slog in terms of trying to get record deals, to get radio play. What kept you going? I think it was just uh, some kind of teeth gritted. It just got so far back to the metal. We're living separately in Sydney. We didn't have any money. Months would go by. We'd been rejected by all the record companies. We didn't sound like anything that was successful. And um, I think everybody thought thought about it very hard, you know, individually, really should leave this. This is going nowhere, which it wasn't. Was there also, though, a kind of confidence in your own talents and and the quality of what you were doing? Yes, we thought... That was part of the burn, is that we would look round at at other bands that weren't as good as us, you know. There was nobody could play like Ian. There was nobody who could sing like Jim and Ian. But other bands who to us were silly were getting the deals, putting out the records, having hits. So that was just part of the burn. You were living in King's Cross. Where did you call home in the early years? I finished up in a residential hotel, which is the polite word, um, for about five and a half years uh, in King's Cross called the Plaza Hotel, uh, where I had a room and, um, you know, in a a grotty bathroom down around the corridor. But it was in the centre of things for what Sydney was then. And who were your neighbours at the Plaza? Uh, When we first... Moved in there. I, I moved the band in there initially because it was the cheapest place in Sydney to live. It was twelve dollars fifty a week, a week? for for um, per person. <laughs> um, the other guys left pretty quickly 
the other clientele in there were, for the first six months, it was working girls. So, you know, at the stairs, there'd be working girls bringing blokes up and uh, past us all the time. And But then they kicked the working girls out, which meant that the place was largely empty. All that was left was, um, you know, people like me and old guys with no hope or, you know, alcoholics, people like that. Were you happy living there, Don? Did it suit you in, in its own way? I was, I was very happy. <laughs> yes, well, I, I, I didn't... I was not socialising in there and neither was anybody else. I was out all the time or else I was in the room reading. Where were you writing songs? Would you write in the plaza or where? Yes, I, I, I would write in that room or more likely write out somewhere, in a park or in a coffee shop. You were messing around with some lyrics at the Sweethearts Cafe one day. Tell me about the song that came out of that, that ended up on Cold Chisel's first album. And... Uh, you're probably talking about K-San. There are a few songs written in there. I, I don't remember writing K-San in, in great detail, just a couple of sheets of paper and and um, writing a song that was vaguely connected to two people that I had known as a younger man. One was a guy who was in the farming communities west of Grafton and had joined the army. There were a few people who did that and went to Vietnam. And then there was another guy called Rick Morris who... Uh, was a singer and guitar player in Adelaide and a lovely guy and he used to sometimes play with us. And, of course, you you know, your dad and your granddad had had military service. Were they somewhere in your imagination as you were creating that song, do you think? I don't think so. Uh, different generation, different war. You know, I, I wrote K-San without doing much research. There was a book out at the time that people in my generation who are in the anti-war movement were passionate about a book called Dispatches. And when when people started to hear K-San, everybody said, oh, you read, you read Dispatches. So after this was going on for a while, I got Dispatches and read it. <laughs> um, and maybe if I had done a little bit more reading, K-San might have been a little bit more accurate. But I was just writing it for myself. I don't think I showed it to the band for quite a while. It was just one of many, many things that I was writing at the time, uh, most of them not much good. Why did you finally show that one, do you think? We got ourselves a manager, a guy called Rod Willis, and um, he saw the band and saw a lot of potential but but saw that the whole, what we were doing was really moribund, that, that we hadn't evolved or done anything or made any progress for a long time. So he said, you need some new songs. And he put us in a rehearsal studio and I brought out this song and we learned it. And did the other guys in the band gel with it straight away? Oh, they're just, you know, new song from Don. Yeah, okay, this will work. <laughs> <laughs> when you'd play a new song for an audience, Don, could you tell right away whether you were on to something? Um... When you're playing a new song for an audience, it may be a good song, but it may be unsuited to the room. So 
You know, if you, if you played a Duke Ellington song to the crowd at the Larks Pier Hotel, they would probably not appreciate that. And But if, if you played an ACDC song at the Cotton Club 100 years ago, the, well, they would appreciate that. That would, that would, <laughs> that would work, work. <laughs> in any century, in any setting. <laughs> so you do, get, you do get feedback from the audience, um, and we, we used to take a lot of notice of that, of what works and, and hone what we did so that it would, it would serve us and serve the people that we're playing to. Did you have a favourite place to play in those years? Uh, in Adelaide, there are a couple of favourite places, uh, in, in particular the, the Larks Pier Hotel down in Port Adelaide. When we left Adelaide, the first place, and it didn't, it didn't happen for years, the first place where we could actually draw a crowd and they got what we did was the Mawson Hotel at Caves Beach south of Newcastle. And from there, the word spread on us through Newcastle. We could always go up to Newcastle suburbs and, and pick up a bit of money. I'm guessing things could um, get a little wild at some of those gigs. Did you feel safe behind your keyboard? <laughs> I, I never felt unsafe. <laughs> um, no, you're in the band. You're a protected species. <laughs> How did life on the road suit you, you know, as the band got bigger and you were doing a lot of touring? Um, for a couple of years, it's a dream life for, you know, younger single blokes who are living together. That can't last forever, of course. Well, it was as the band was breaking up that you wrote one of your most beautiful songs, Flame Trees, and it's a song that's you know, full of nostalgia for a place and a time, but also warning about sentimentality about the past. Was that the kind of mix of feelings that you had yourself at that stage? Flame Trees was written about Grafton and, and about a particular person. It was, uh, the music was written by Steve Presswich first, and he was, he was playing it to me for more than a year in back rooms while we're on tour, playing this melody and this music, saying, you know, can you come up with some lyrics? So I finally, in the last year we were together, I, I came up with these lyrics quite quickly, over a day or two. And um, Steve was not 100% sold on the lyrics, but we demoed it anyway. We did a demo with an American producer, which was just supposed to be the rough demo for a, a more serious recording later on. And that demo is, um, is actually the demo that you hear. Don, was there a sense of freedom for you once the band had called it quits? Yes, enormously, enormous relief. Relief? Uh, yes. The last two years of Cold Chisel were, were more and more relationships between, between us were, were more and more tested. By that stage, we were all living separate lives. We all had our own, um, you know, relationships and, uh, and we, we weren't, weren't five guys on a mission anymore and hadn't been for quite a while. So to, to finish that and, and walk away from it, uh, by that stage, was, was a huge relief. You took off travelling. Where did you head, Don? Initially, I, I drove around Australia 
for some months, spent a little while in Broome, and then um, I folded up everything, all my affairs in Sydney, and and uh, I took off travelling. I had a had a suitcase full of visas, and I went to the Philippines initially, then um, Hong Kong, Japan, then from Hong Kong I went into China, and up through China. Got myself a Mongolian visa in Beijing. You could only you <laughs> sounds could only, like a song lyric. <laughs> yeah, you could only get them uh, in Beijing in those days. Took the train up to Ikutsk in Siberia, which was uh, wrote a song about a night there. Then across what was then the Soviet Union to Moscow. I visited Kiev, visited Leningrad, and eventually got the train out to Berlin. Uh, but then I spent more times in in Eastern and Western Europe too. Were you writing songs in that time? Yes. Yes, I was. Not songs that would fit any kind of a radio playlist or, <laughs> you know, impress a record company. You eventually packed that suitcase up and came back to Australia to raise your daughter. Where did the two of you set up home? Well, I, I had a house in uh, Kings Cross, uh, by the time cultures were finished, and I came home and um, and set up house there. So I'm imagining imagining that she must have had a a very different childhood to your free range one in Grafton. Yes, uh, it's my older daughter Danielle, and um, she went to school in Darlinghurst, and um, we set up there a little family for two. Nobody in the city has a free-range childhood like you do on a farm. You were also making your own music and, and fronting your own bands over all these years. From that first time that you stood behind a keyboard and, you know, your leg went dead and the, the volume knob went all over the place, what was it like to be the front man? How did that feel? That was terrifying. Again, it took me many years to to try and do my own music with me singing it and and to stand out there at the first gig I think I drank a little bit I didn't realize until that moment you asked me a little while ago how did I feel safe behind the keyboard and I didn't realize until that moment what a a security blanket having a keyboard in front of you is to stand there with just a mic and an expectant and judgmental audience is a completely different thing. That's starting again. So how did you build up your muscle for that? Like with all these things you just do, you do it badly <laughs> for long enough until you start doing it okay. Did you find yourself writing different kinds of songs if you were going to be the person singing them rather than someone else? Yes, I had to. Initially, I, I was writing as I had always written and then trying to sing songs that were that could only be sung by the two singers that I had had, you know, to sing whatever I wrote in Colchisel. And nobody can sing like them, not even other good singers. <laughs> so, so I had to try and evolve my songwriting so that it could work with uh, people who are not such extraordinary singers like me. <laughs> and what what works? What did you find fits for the way you sing and the way you present on stage? What's what's different? I just do what I do and, and hope nobody gets offended. 
You've just released a new album called Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky, which you're touring at the moment. And there's a really great song on that album called When I Win the Lottery. Does the mathematician in you, Don, the man who understands probabilities, does he still let you buy lotto tickets? Uh, I cashed in a lottery ticket yesterday. Cashed in? I did cash in a lottery Significant ticket. amount? Uh, the lottery ticket cost me $70 and I won 60 <laughs> Why do you do it? What's the appeal? If there's anybody out there who's got some money to be laundered, um, I'm available. But uh, no, the appeal is you walk past a new news agent and you see a number with a zero on it, you know. I don't buy a lottery ticket if it's $3 million. But if it's $30 million, then you can, some serious dreams can kick in. And that's really what you're buying. That's, that's why anybody buys a lottery ticket. I guess it's also why anybody plays a poker machine or, or goes to the TAB, is you're buying that, um, that time between the purchase and the result when you can dream about how you would spend that money. How would you live your life differently if you won that $30 million? I would not live a different life. There's, there's nothing that I can dream about that I can't do now that I would want to do. I'm not that interested in having a, a more expensive car or a boat, but I could change the lives of those around me, you know. Like your favourite radio presenter, for example. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Has the reason you write songs changed since those early years? I mean, what are you doing it for now? A range of reasons. As my old mate Graham Connors says, it's a muscle. You've got to exercise it. I do it for fun, for my personal enjoyment. I like to write things that make me laugh, even though more and more those things can never see the light of day. I like to write things that make my friends laugh. I like to write things that that uh, the people that I play with, that I'm close to in my band, think are good when I bring them in. That's always been a motivation going back to when I was young, when you bring in something in and your mates look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's a good moment. Do you get antsy if you're not writing? What, what happens to your mood if you're not working on a song? No, my, my antsiness or otherwise is not connected to song output. Um, I haven't figured out what that's connected to, but uh, certainly there are long periods where I don't write and there are periods where I write intensely and, and I don't worry about it. I know if, I'm not, if I haven't written anything for a while, I don't think about it. I know that one day it might happen and if it didn't, it would only mean that I didn't need to do that anymore. Don, thank you very much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you very much for having me on. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.